The most important question for any person to answer is not who am I, but who is Christ? From the message shared with you last week, those are the final words, and they now make up the first words of this week's message. How we answer who is Christ will determine who we are in Christ. And so we turn back to the book of John to see who Christ is, looking at how the apostle unveils the one known as the word of God, as we saw last week. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the gospel of John, the gospel of John chapter one. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled a proper presentation of Christ, the sustaining light. And please stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes before, after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You may be seated. Whether we are identified by Christ in heaven is determined by how we identify Christ on earth. For some, the name of Jesus is identified with a man, maybe even a good man, but he is but a man. Perhaps a philosopher, somebody whose teachings are good and right to follow. For others, though, the name of God invokes a God. The name of Christ invokes a God as though one who ranks slightly above the finite beings that inhabit the earth, but still ranks slightly below the infinite being who inhabits heaven. At the name of Jesus, a few people may identify him as Messiah, as the one who will inaugurate God's kingdom. And even fewer will call him Lord, ruler and master, not just over creation, but over an individual's life. John identifies Jesus first as the Word, 
And then he moves on to call him the light and life. What enters our mind when Christ is named here determines whether we enter Christ's presence when we are named by Christ there. Where there is Christ, there is life. And where there is no Christ, there is no life. He is not just the giver of life, but the giver of joy in life. Some view Christ as the opposite. They consider him to be an authoritarian whose rules limit the joy experienced by those who would follow him. And so they don't see him as a joy giver, but a joy reliever. But the opposite is really quite true. Christ is the sufficient giver of life. Not only giving it, but he gives it abundantly. And therefore, we, where Christ is not sufficient in life, there is no satisfaction in life. Charles Darwin is a case study for this. Nearing death, he admits his own loss of joy in life, and he even writes about himself, saying, My mind has changed during the last 20 or 30 years. Now, for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I have also almost lost any taste for pictures or music. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for simply grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. If I had to live my life again, I would have made a rule to read some poetry and listen to some music at least once every week. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature. I think, though, Darwin hasn't made one important connection. Joy comes not just in partaking in the creation. Joy comes in partaking in the creator. It would seem that the more that Charles Darwin committed to a secularist life, the less he was satisfied by that life. Darwin failed to make the connection between who he was and who Christ is. Following the rules of introduction etiquette, John has introduced Jesus Christ, and he's done so as the Word. The Word was God, and the Word was with God, as we talked about last week. Now John adds more details about the identity of Christ, noting in verses 4 and 5 that he is the light and life of men. And he tells us three things about that light. I want you to note first, the source of the light. The source of the light. John's introduced Christ as the eternal God, noting that he is the creative designer responsible for bringing all things into being. Now John further distinguishes Jesus by describing in verse 4 with these words, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him, in Christ, was life. Because he is the self-existent one, no thing, no person supplies Christ with life. But instead, Christ supplies life to all created, created things. Everything that was created must receive its source of life from its creator. John, here in our text, correlates life and light. He asserts, basically, they are the same thing. They are synonyms for one another. Just as the word was God in verse 1, the light was life here. 
The first act of creation in Genesis 1 was to give light. Light makes life possible. Without life, there is no light. Light emotionally contributes to life. Because for some, the absence of life brings upon feelings of desolation and desperation. Life physically contributes to life. It is necessary for physical growth. Without it, crops wane and life cannot be even sustained. And life even contributes socially. Societies function based upon the coming and the going of the light. They set their activities and their schedules with the action of the bodies that govern light. We only need to look at the Old Testament and look at the feast to think about that. Gerald Borchardt reminds us that light does not belong naturally to humanity. It is a gift or a power from outside the human situation that confronts the world. So light must be sourced from somewhere else. One of the most frightening speculations is an existence absent of light. Because a world plunged into darkness is a world plunged into death. Even the introduction of artificial light is an insufficient substitute. Because at best, it's just a copy of the original. And a copy can never capture the quality of the original. A light bulb will never give off the same illumination, nor will it provide the same level of heat. A world of darkness is deprived of sustenance, and a world of darkness is deprived of sustainability, and a world of darkness is deprived of its sight. John, though, never speaks just of physical life. He always uses a precise Greek word that always refers to spiritual life. And so the severest consequence of them of all is it's not physical darkness, it's spiritual darkness. At the sound of the third trumpet in Revelation chapter 8, darkness becomes a physical judgment given for a spiritual problem. Later on in Revelation 16, the Lord pours out the fifth bowl judgment, which is again darkness. But this darkness is more severe than what we saw in Revelation 8 because this one comes with pain. In fact, so severe is that pain that the result of it is that it says that people nod their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and yet they did not repent of their deeds. More importantly, in Scripture, darkness is equated with evil. Proverbs 2, 13 through 14 says that those who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. They rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. 419, same, same book, says the way of the wicked is like a deep darkness. They do not know what they stumble. And then Jesus affirms this in John 11.10. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In his poem, Paradise Lost, John Milton refers to Satan as the prince of darkness. That's an accurate title because indeed scripture tells us that is the realm of Satan. That is where Satan operates. <clears throat> In darkness, he is able to deceive, but light would illuminate that deception. 
for this reason in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Then Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The psalmist describes the light that Jesus essentially this way, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And so Jesus is the light. And just as it does in physical life, this light holds several distinctive roles in the spiritual life. As the light, Jesus stimulates individual and personal growth. As light, Jesus warms. That is, that through the work of progressive sanctification, he initiates a work of becoming more and more and more holy by helping people to overcome any depraved or evil manners, to overcome that darkness. John twelve forty six, it says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And so he warms, bringing a cold, dead person to life. Consider that there's never been an instance in which a person has been delivered from corrupt living by converting from Christianity to atheism or agnosticism. This is the work of Christ, the light who warms. And not only does this light cause growth and warm, but Psalm 119, 105 says that this light guides. It illuminates the path of the believer. And then Isaiah 9-2 indicates that the light reveals. And so the light not only sustains physical life, it sustains spiritual life. Jesus Christ is the light and life of men. On that truth depends the Christian's perseverance. Our willingness to pursue Christ is determined by our willingness to believe that he is life and light. And I say that, that is a true statement because of something very important in our theology. We don't believe that the opposite of light and life is darkness and death. The opposite of light and life is enduring corruption and eternal condemnation. The opposite of light and life is not death and darkness. It is enduring corruption and eternal condemnation. We look at eternal life excited, thinking that the opposite is death. But what the word says is that it's eternal condemnation. John 3.36, it doesn't say that whoever believes in me has eternal life and whoever doesn't has eternal death. (coughs) No, it says whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him that is eternal condemnation one of the detriments we do to ourselves is to think of eternal life given by jesus in terms of quantity more than we think of it in quality in man's quest for immortality the notion of eternal life it draws our attention most because it it appeals to our desire to live forever And so we think eternal life is merely an extension of the life we live now. 
In one sense, though, every person has eternal life. In one sense, every person will live forever. It's a matter of where they will live. If the opposite of eternal life is eternal condemnation, then what Christ is offering is not just a greater quantity of life. He's not just seeking to extend our life. He's trying to give us a better quality of life. Paul describes it this way in Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Christ as light and life not only grants eternal life, but it moves a person from eternal condemnation to eternal exaltation. And so salvation changes the quality of life. Isn't that what Jesus promises in John 10.10? That I have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. How he does this, we'll see in the next verse. But as the light and life, the abundant life is found in Christ. It cannot be found in copies. Just as a light bulb is a poor substitute for the sun, any philosophy, any religion, any ideology is a poor substitute for Christology, for a theology of Christ. A light bulb will eventually burn out. And so too will those worldly dogmas, those worldly philosophies. They will eventually erode, and what they will reveal that true light and true life come from Christ, and only from Christ. The Christian then must become like a seed that has been planted in Matthew 12. That as the roots form and the the plant begins to take shape, it begins to grow upward, seeking after that true light as it breaks free from the darkness of the soil. To, To carry that metaphor further, that plant, as it grows up towards the light, then begins to grow outward. And so we note first the source of the light. Anything else is simply an imitation. I want you to note second, the shining of the light. John points out this in the first part of verse 5. It says the light shines in the darkness. That is the purpose of the light. A light hidden has no effect. But a light that shines dispels the darkness and it begins to expose reality. Even a single candle has the capacity to chase away the darkness within its own realm. First, it subjects the darkness around it immediately to the light and it overcomes that darkness. Second, it makes the rest of the darkness felt. So that when you look at the light, you begin to feel the imposing force that is the darkness. And so your goal is to bring more light, to dispel more darkness. This is who Christ is. And this is what Christ does. B.F. Westcott describes it this way. The light which reveals the world does not make the darkness, but it makes the darkness felt. 
If the sun is hidden, all is shadow, though we call the shadow only which is contrasted with the sunlight. For that contrast seems to intensify that which is, however left just what, is, what it was before. This is what Christ has done by coming, he says. He stands before the world in perfect purity, and we must feel as men could not feel before he came, the imperfection and the impurity of the world. There are two responses to light. We can embrace it or we can flee from it. Just two chapters from our text, John will write in in chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Darkness is exposed as evil. And so darkness is corrupted by sin. It's an awful place to reside. And yet the words of John here in chapter 3, they speak of these people who are willing to maintain their dwelling in darkness. They've been blinded by Satan. These people are convinced they are experiencing the optimum quality of life. That is, they're living their best life now. There is nothing greater than this. And so they cling to their evil deeds. They protect them. They don't want to expose them to the light. I dare say sometimes we even as believers do that. But later in John chapter 12, Jesus warns these individuals. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So the light is going away. And if that light goes away, how does anyone have life? Does that leave people without hope? No, because what does our text say in John chapter 1? It says the light shines in the darkness. Note the present tense. The light shines. It didn't shine. It won't shine. It is shining. It shines. So how does the light shine if Christ the light is no longer physically present? And Paul answers for us in 2 Corinthians 4. We began to read this verse earlier, or this section, reading verse 4. It says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. And then verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That light continues to shine through believers. Speaking about the mind, William Wordsworth once wrote, what we have loved, others will love, and we will teach them 
how. We will instruct them how the mind of man becomes a thousand times more beautiful than the earth on which it dwells. Again, Wordsworth writes secularly, but I think he is right. As a note, when Charles Darwin said there was poetry he could no longer read, one of his contemporaries was William Wordsworth. These were words that he no longer found joy in. So I think Wordsworth is right, with one perhaps change. Instead of a mind set on earthly things, as he suggests, the mind finds more beauty when it's set on the heavenly things, as we learned from Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. This mind has been dispelled of darkness. It's been exposed to the light by dwelling on Christ, who is the light. It loves Christ and thus dwells on him. And now, using William Wordsworth's own words, we now teach others to love what we love. We are a reflection of the light of Christ. And those who embrace the light receive the light. And this is how the Lord Jesus Christ begins to impart the abundant life. That light of Christ exposes the darkness. It exposes the spots of sinfulness that are incompatible with his holiness. And he forces us to contend with those areas, bringing about repentance. Repentance is to confess that darkness, to confess that evil, to remove it, and to return to Christ in an act of restoration. And so not only does he restore us to life with Christ, but then that light removes anything associated with the darkness as well. It removes any guilt that we might carry because of the darkness in our life. It may remove any pressure to carry on in the darkness that we may feel from a desire to please others. And it may remove any demand that we may have to live a life of works, competing with others to outdo one another for the acceptance. The result of this is a person is free to live in the light. We never have to fear that we have these hidden spots of darkness that are going to be exposed by the light and bring us down. Christ exposes them and re returns us to him. And this is what it means to, for Christ to give life and give it abundantly. One of the joys I have in, in writing with my pens that I've shared with you is the variety of inks available to me. I have a number of inks that actually change color. Some are blues that will look red. Others are greens that look purple. But inside the house, under the dim light of a bulb, those, those features aren't seen. You can only see them usually when you're outside in the bright sun. Then you can see the brilliance fully, and that what happens is the sun washes away that darkness, and it reveals the radiance of those true colors. In some cases, they literally they begin to sparkle. This is what happens when the light shines. The abundant life is revealed. And so the shining light exposes darkness, that we may have an abundant life. This is the shining of the light. And so we've seen the source of the light. We've seen the shining of the light. I want you to note, finally, the sufficiency of the light. The sufficiency of the light. 
John closes verse 5 with, with the words, it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In those words, we see the sufficiency of the light. Because Jesus Christ is the source of the light, the light is sufficient. It takes but a, a single light to overcome the darkness, just as the candle overcomes darkness. So Christ overcomes darkness. We are in that time of year where one of the most popular decorations is a string of lights hung together. When affixed to a house or fence lines or, or a tree even, they turn the darkness into brightness so that they can be seen even from a great distance. But there's something very unique about Christ. He is God. And so he's omnipresent, meaning he is present in all places at all times. Unlike those Christmas lights, which take hundreds or sometimes even thousands to overcome any great lengths of darkness, there is only one Christ, and he alone is all that is necessary to conquer all darkness. It's worth noting that the Greek word translated in our text has three potential meanings. The Greek word that says overcome, for some, it, it, sometimes it means to quench or to extinguish. Most of us understand, most people realize that that doesn't fit our context here, and so that seems improbable. But there are two other meanings that could make sense, especially when we look at the verses in John that we've already spent time reading through. The first definition is the definition of understanding or apprehending, as in the darkness did not apprehend or did not understand the light. We saw this in the reading of John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. As some people indeed chose to not apprehend, they chose to reject the light. This makes even more sense when you look at verse 13 of chapter 1 that indicates that people really can't understand apart from God. And so as a result, it's, it's not untruthful to say that the darkness did not understand or did not apprehend the light. But I think the third definition is more probable which is to overtake or to conquer. That is to say that the darkness will not conquer the light. That's the description we saw in John chapter 12. Since the time of his birth, there has always existed active opposition to Christ. There have always been those who have sought to undo his method, his message, and his magnificence. Upon hearing the birth of Christ, Herod opposed Christ's claim to the throne by killing children under the age of two, all children at that. At his popularity, the priests and the scribes opposed Christ's ability, claiming that everything he did was by the work of Beelzebul. And then after having their own legalism exposed, the Pharisees rejected Christ's authority. And then finally, in, in mass, these groups all come together and they shouted, shouted to Pontius Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. Darkness hates the light. And so it will expend all its energy to oppose that light. But here in verse 5 of the first chapter of John, John gives hope by saying that that darkness will never overcome that light. They did crucify him. 
But three days later, he rose again. Their greatest weapon, physical death, was not sufficient enough to render Jesus Christ incapable. As a ruler of darkness, Satan actively opposes the light of Christ. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, it says in 1 John 5.19. But despite this opposition, Christ always prevails. Satan is, at one time will be conquered. He will be bound for a time and then even be released. And then it says in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain and earth, the broad plains of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is eternal condemnation. Light conquers darkness. One of the most enjoyed movie series spanning multiple generations has been Star Wars. It is the classic battle between good and evil. But that battle never seems to be resolved. It's an ongoing one because both sides seem to hold equal power. And so there's never really any certainty about who will win. That's not the case with Christ. He will never be overcome. And, and for those who may begin to doubt, 1 John 2.8 encourages believers. It says at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And then we look at how that final victory is described in Revelation 22.5. And night will be no more. There will need no light. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. That's eternal exaltation. Victory is seen by abolishing night and darkness. Sometimes there's great pressure to walk in darkness. At the times that pressure comes from outside, from those walking in darkness who are trying to get us to conform to their ways. Other times that pressure comes from, from inside, from ourselves, in which our sinful flesh battles with the sanctified spirit. Christ is sufficient. He is the sufficient light to overcome that darkness. And Peter says that those who are in him, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus said. But I came that they may have life and have life abundantly. 
What Charles Darwin seemed not to realize was that the loss of Christ meant the loss of life. Jesus Christ was the source of light, the sufficient source who will eventually vanquish the darkness. When allowed to shine into the darkness of a person's life, it can be very difficult, but it always, always brings forth an abundant life. Charles Darwin was initially a follower of Christ, and many believers will point to that. But though we would expect a study of nature and a study of animals to lead him closer to his creator, for Darwin it led him further away. And the more he lacked Christ in life, the more he lacked contentment in life. Light doesn't belong naturally to humanity. It has to be given by someone. And so at creation, God gave the light in the form of the sun and the moon and the stars. Their creation was God's revelation. Their existence reveals the existence of an all-powerful God. Without this creation, the physical life would not be possible. For salvation, though, God gave the light in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. The birth of Christ furthers the revelation of God. But this time it reveals God in the form of man. And the combination of being fully God and fully man makes salvation possible. And without salvation, the spiritual life wouldn't be possible. The most important asset for man's life, for man is life. If this weren't the case, if we didn't consider life to be a, the most important asset we have, we wouldn't consider the loss of life to be a tragic experience. But life comes, though, not from man. It comes from God. And so it is God we seek after because we seek the light and life who is Christ. And so where there is no Christ, there is no life. And so we could say to experience life, we must experience Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, <clears throat> indeed, you are the light and life. Father, we're grateful that you have taken it upon yourself to, to reveal yourself. You reveal yourself through the giving of light, first through the creation itself of the, the light of the sun and the moon and the stars, Lord, and that that gives physical life. But also, Lord, we're grateful that you revealed yourself through the light who is your son, because by it we can find salvation and that we can be saved not from eternal death but from eternal condemnation. Father, it, it brings great joy to know that in avoiding that eternal condemnation that we have a future with you, that we can live in your glorious presence of which there is nothing to compare to, Lord. And so, Father, may that be the delight of our hearts. May that be what we seek after. And so, Father, may we seek that light here and now, ready to experience that light there and later. We thank you for your this time and this morning and your word, Lord. May we continuously rest in your light and life. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.